This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Good afternoon and welcome everyone to today's panel discussion on water. It's always exciting to me when I've assembled such a group of talent with diverse practices, backgrounds, and experiences to talk about something so fundamental to all of us. None of us can survive without water. And yet we're in an area that notwithstanding the incredible amount of rain we've had this year, we are still struggling. We have very little rainfall. We don't do as much as we should to preserve it, to capture it, to reuse it, to recycle it. And the people on this stage today are all incredible incredible innovators in their respective areas with this problem. And together, I'm confident they can solve all the problems of the world. That's not even an overstatement. <laughs> all right. So on my very far right is my good friend, BJ Care. He is the founder and owner of Solar Rain Watery, which is America's only desalinated ocean water bottled water, which is 100% solar power. He says 83, but last I heard was 87% efficiency. And what is brilliant about his product, there's absolutely zero waste product. There's no return of the salty brine to the ocean. In fact, then what he does is use the same solar power to dehydrate that salty brine to make sea salt, which he sells to restaurants. Like this is a brilliant solution to the one source of water we know that isn't shrinking, but in fact rising. So we could potentially kill two birds, one stone. Um, and he also, that water is in biodegradable, recyclable containers. He can tell you more about it. But thank you, BJ, for being here with us. Always my privilege. On my immediate right is Sarah Livia brightwood Zake. Uh, she's the executive president of Rancho La Puerta. She is also the owner of Tres Estrellas, which is an organic garden in Tecate, not too far from here, uh, which feeds the lucky guests of Rancho La Puerta with incredible food, and Rancho La Puerta was founded by her parents 83 years ago this week, which I think is incredible, really, truly. Uh, she is also the president of Fundación La Puerta, an organization fo focused in Tecate on sustainability. And her project that she's here to talk about today is the project that she started, which is a, a water treatment project at Tres Estrellas, which is passive, biological, net zero energy, and no waste. And she's going to tell you more about that in case you don't know what any of that means. You are not alone, and she'll explain it to you. On my left is Dr. Juana Claudia Leva Aguilera, but Claudia, see? Yeah. Claudia. She's a biologist um, with the National School of Biological Sciences, IPN. She has a master's in ecosystem management, a doctorate in environment and development from WABC, and she's currently overseeing a project regarding participatory management of a community aquifer which is called Observatorio Guadalupe. And we're going to hear about the work that she's doing right here in this community. Next, we have Luis Salgado. He has a Bachelor of Science uh, in Environmental Hydrology and Water Resources from the University of Arizona. He is the Green Infrastructure Project Manager at Watershed Management Group in Tucson, Arizona. He's also, as I discovered, a member of the Arizona-Sonora Border Region Water Task Force. And he is focused on community-centric ecological approaches to education or educating the public about environmental issues and natural resource conservation, namely water. But not just water, but today we'll talk about water. 
And finally, last but not least, we have Alejandro Carrillo, who is a fourth-generation Chihuahuan rancher. He utilizes holistic land management practices to increase the yield. Um, He's been featured in several documentaries, including Common Ground, which is just right today premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York, and he will be going straight there tomorrow to join in the festivities. So felicidades. And let's say he's a little bit of a magician, and I think everyone on the panel is. He has managed to increase the rainfall in his land and other land doing similar holistic land management practices by 10% by using mixed herd rational grazing. And I love that. When I asked him if he did rotational grazing, he said, no, 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 no. I call it rational grazing. So actually, let's start with you. Let's talk a little bit about what you do, Alejandro. Tell me about the work you do. And thanks for the opportunity to share some of the things that we we do uh, at the ranch. So actually, it was because we needed to make a change. A lot of the land has been desertified. And actually, um, unprofitable business. You know, we, we say that in order to have a cattle ranch eat and sustainable cattle ranch, it needs to be uh, profitable as well. It's one of the parts of sustainability that people often don't think about because if you can't maintain it, how are you going to continue that action? So I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we cannot actually rely on on uh, the government help us or things like that. So that actually uh, make us uh, do the change into a more regenerative, holistic, uh, rational grazing. What do you or, mean by rational grazing? Well, we say rational because it's a thinking process. I mean, there are some signs of what we do, but also there's a lot of thinking. Because remember, it's quite complicated to deal with nature. There's very many variables. Sometimes ranchers tell me, oh, I'm about the same as 10 years ago. I don't think so. I mean, we are actually improving or we are actually degrading the land. So we try to get into that uh, virtuous, virtuous uh, cycle mm-hmm. of improving the land, improving the soil, improving the diversity, improving the wildlife, capturing more water, lowering the... What does improving the soil have to do with increasing water or availability of water? Yeah, you know, the the conventional knowledge of uh, farmers and ranchers is that if we till the soil, then we will actually be able to to capture more water. It's exactly the opposite. Exactly. So Explain wh- that, because that is definitely a prevailing viewpoint, this old methodology of till, but what does that do? Releases carbon, dries up the soil. So tell us yeah, why. Yeah, it does actually compact the soil. Mm-hmm. So as we explained earlier today, uh, the major limitation on on uh, productivity in, in farmland and rangeland is not actually water, it's air in the soil. So as we feed the microbiology in the soil, specifically the mycorrhizal fungi, that uh, fungi actually creates the aggregates of the space in the soil, which will allow us to actually infiltrate more water. Think about for a moment, in the state of Chihuahua, we did a study, we're only infiltrating 40% of the water. So we asked the rancher, don't tell me how much rain you get, how much water you can infiltrate and keep for the plant. And you mean by that, that 60% that's hitting and just running off, which we all experience and some of the drier climates. But when you talk about infiltrating, you mean water that is literally captured and stored and preserved in the soil. And how do you do that? Exactly, exactly. We are trying to mimic nature. I mean, some people ask me, what do you do? What do you do, Alejandro? I'm just mimicking nature. So in nature, 
you actually always cover the soil. You have diversity, not a monoculture. Uh, you have a living roots. And then you're, see, one of the most important tasks that we do is to fix the water cycle. What is a normal water cycle is when it rains, it infiltrates. Mm -hmm. And then it's taken by the plants and it evapotranspirates. When it does evapotranspirate, it's living water. It's not just like uh, dead water, like uh, evaporation. And that goes with aerial bacteria into the sky, to the clouds, and then it actually promotes, again, more rain. That's what we're trying to do by mimicking nature. And when, I, when we say mimicking nature, in northern Mexico, we have this big herds of bison making animal impact with all the tools that the livestock does, you know, I mean, like the hoof impact, the saliva, the rain, the manure, and then we give it a rest. And that's the way we, we start awaking it, awaking the dormancy that is waiting for the right conditions to germinate. Which is how you've managed to increase the growth of grasses and herbs on the soil that we're talking about. Exactly, exactly. It's interesting. I, someone I know you know, Ray Archuleta, who uh, was in the film Kiss the Ground. If you haven't seen it, little plug, it's on Netflix. Um, but it, the common ground, the film that he's featured in is the follow-up by the same filmmakers. But he, I, 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 one of the parts of the film that really stuck to me is he, he used to teach at the USDA schools and so forth. And he said that farmers learn that soil is simply a growing medium, that it's not alive. And yet we know that there are more microorganisms in one tiny handful of healthy soil than there are or ever will be human beings on the planet. And the difference between dead dirt and alive, healthy soil is not just for the plants, but also increasing the growth and also, as you say, bringing more water and rain and moisture to the region. And how? tell me how. Yeah, it is. We need green plants. Why do we need, I mean, when we started working at the ranch, we only have green uh, grass on the three months that we got the rain, the monsoon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, because we are now able to infiltrate more water through, thanks to the photosynthesis, <laughs> because you need the photosynthesis to feed the microbiology. If you stop doing, if you stop getting these green plants, then you're going to reduce that populations, and then this all is going to get compacted again. So that actually is what helped us to feed the microbiology around the year and then to keep the water where the plant can use it. Because remember, we have our bacteria in our tummies, in our stomachs that <laughs> help us digest. The plants depend on the microbiology. So exactly. they have a, a symbiotic relationship and they need each other. One of the things, I know you're a cattle rancher and that's your primary business, but as I know you've said before, is that you don't just graze cattle. You have a mixed herd, and why is that? Yeah, um, you know, you, you keep evolving on your management, trying to get as close as possible to nature. So in nature, you don't really have only deer, or you don't only have, like, uh, all kind of uh, different grazers, uh, big horns and things. So why are we actually using only cattle? That, that really is not, it's a monoculture of grazers. Exactly. You know? So Same we're, concept. So we're integrating donkeys, uh, sheep, goats in a big herd, horses. Okay. So now I'm going to move to you, Luis, a little bit. Mm -hmm. My panel hasn't gotten rolling yet. We'll get them mm -hmm. going. But I want you to talk to us a little bit about what you do with watershed management. What does that mean exactly? What do you do at your organization and you personally? What moves you? Yeah, no, you were like, you know, that resonates a lot with me uh, in terms of like what I do uh, with the work that I do with Marsha and personally of mimicking the natural cycle, right? Reintroducing the hydrologic cycle back into our built environments, our urban environments, 
uh, through, you know, implementing green infrastructure and making better use of the water uh, that we get that would just otherwise run off and who knows where it ends up, right? Evapotranspirated or ponded. So you're talking about capture. Capture, right. And then we've heard there's active and passive capture. What does that mean? So active is kind of like maybe what most people are uh, familiar with. Active are those tanks, um, the, um, what are these called? The gutters, uh, all those systems that you you collect from your roof, put it in a tank and then use it, use that water for when you need it, right? Um, I think one thing that goes along with active systems is that, you know, it's very, well, relatively simple to kind of like install these systems at somebody's home, uh, someone's property. But what is, what is the education behind how to use this water that we're now storing, right? Huh. Um, I'll, you know, very much take it into context where you're at, uh, the types of uh, rainy seasons that you get and what are you trying to grow, right? What's going to survive in your environment? Uh, so that's very much kind of like a very reduced um, summary of active systems. Passive systems, what I'm really passionate about is shaping the earth to collect the water and, uh, you know, infiltrating it, putting, putting it back into the ground again. Like, like you, you mentioned, you know, more, I think, I forget the stats uh, correctly, but... 70 like 70 to 80 percent of our water is now running off instead of like going back mm-hmm. to our mm-hmm. home first where mm-hmm. more where before where we didn't have all these like you know um impermeable surfaces most of that water was going back yeah. into the ground so that's kind of like what i keep that's kind of like my mission in a lot of what i do um and you know kind of like to your point of kind of like uh you know different new ways a rational way of uh rational tracing um taking the time to observe your landscape observe the nature how things are working in your backyard and your community and your neighborhood um, instead of like getting into action right away, right? So it's long and thoughtful observation and looking at what's happening and knowing how to read the land so you can better uh, make use of your resources and things that are falling right up on your head, right? Um, One thing that I really like to say is don't just do something, stand there, right? Because you might as well just take the time and then (laughs) try to like uh, streamline everything and then kind of like go back and try to like fix your processes. Like let's get a holistic view, an integrated approach to uh, these systems that we're designing to bring back these systems um, into our cities. Yeah. You said something earlier that I really liked during the introduction, which was, you know, we tend to think of urban environments and rural environments as these two things as being completely different. And they may be, but there's there's no reason why we can't and clearly should bring more of the rural alive environment into the urban environment. If we're going to continue to live in an urban environment, it's probably necessary. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I uh, again mimicking nature, right? We want to. My idea is that nature is not out there, or nature is not like way out there. I'm gonna go hike. <laughs> That's one day a week, I'm going to go to nature and then come exactly. back. <laughs> Let's make that part of our way of living, our lifestyles, right? Our sustainable livelihoods. We can bring the spaces here and and sort of like bring that big sh- nature back into the city, right? It makes me happier to like go out and be able to walk under some trees, under some shade, uh, knowing that the water that these trees are using are water that would otherwise just kind of like run off uh, and cause problems to somebody. Now it's uh, some, a beneficial resource uh, for these plants, for all the different communities that take part of our lives, right? Not just human, but like all different organisms that just in the soil and the air and the trees, the animals, all of that stuff. It's very symbiotic if we'll just sort of slow down and accept. Yeah, the idea, idea. idea of like ecological <laughs> relationships, right? Forming That's those. Inter- integrated, interrelated. Exactly. So like not just human-centric, but yeah, life-centric. Yeah, very it's important. Very yeah. important. Claudia, is there anything you want to add before I go ask a question of my neighbor on the right? He, well, um, the... For my formation in uh, academic formation, I, I like with biologists. But in this project, 
uh, academic comes to the community, of course. Uh, the Observatorio Participativo Guadalupe is the opportunity to the information, the academic information, using for the people. In this case, uh, word in a lot about the water because the water is the point for this thing, of course. And I and I think I, w I was listening to what you said before. And the critical thing, I think, and the magic of where academia can really, really be impactful in communities is not coming in and saying, we know how to solve your problems, but coming in and saying, what are your problems? Tell me about them. Is there any way in which we might be able to help? And I think that's beautiful what you're doing here, which is a real conversation with the community about the problems and then utilizing all of the resources to try to address them. Yes, the most important is um interchange of the novel because the people make many things for the using the water for yes. and the and the academic using this information but the there are not communicating there's a disconnect yeah, disconnect yes. but at the observatorio participativo is the 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 link for uh -huh. this The community with academia, academic, and had a, a more the decision making takes the information, the 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 correct information for taking exactly how to take action based on the community's needs, the community's activities, and how the you know the resources that are available here at the university setting can come into play and really make a positive impact. This is big for you, too. You're all about education. That's a big part of your watershed management group. Yeah, it's, it's being able to provide the people with those the knowledge, right, and the resources to do things. I don't want to say the right way, but maybe the most appropriate to their context, right? Uh, something that might work for, you know, this person or this place over here might not be the best uh, scenario approach to have here. So informing, informing on how to, like, you know, people can be familiar with the tanks and the water harvesting, but what, what's the use? What is it that Um, um, the application of it. Now, let me talk about what you're doing over at the ranch in Tecate. You've been there a long time. You were born there, weren't you? I was actually born in San Diego, oh, but okay. I've been at the ranch since I was three days old. There, well, uh, close enough. <laughs> Amazing. My parents arrived in 1940, and I've been witness to this incredible evolution of uh, both a business, a sanctuary, a wellness retreat, um, and an innovative program that has now been copied by thousands and thousands of places. It's the most sincere form of flattery, you know, imitation. So that means you're doing something very right. <laughs> But I would say that my focus has been ecological since I, since I was a teenager. And um, my studies in school allowed me also to focus on education for our community. So Fundación La Puerta, the nonprofit arm of Rancho La Puerta, has been the leader in environmental education in Northern Baja now for 30 years. And uh, just, just Monday was the International Day for the Environment, El Día Mundial del Medio Ambiente. And we had a thousand sixth graders there going through a, a variety of stations that were a combination of, of games and education. And then we had the science fair projects, and they were focused on plastics, microplastics, trash, 
and the three R's recycle, reduce, and reuse. Um, and it was amazing to see how this generation has really taken on the challenge. And I think the, the beauty of being somewhere for 83 years is that we can see multiple generations move the dialogue forward. And the children that we had 20 years ago in our environmental education program are now in positions of influence. They're teachers themselves. And, and that's a tremendously gratifying thing to see. Well, yeah, and the work that you've been doing there uh, on many, many fronts is extraordinary. And I, of course, um, know of the garden, Tres Estrellas, which is amazing. And the current project that you have there is in sort of cleaning up water in that area. You want to tell us a little bit about what you've done to try to address an issue where you are, a new issue, really. So as a farmer, we, we had really good well, very high-quality water. And as the water table of the aquifer has been contaminated by industry in the city and by a very um, obsolete and poorly maintained water treatment plant so that 50% of Tecate's um, wastewater goes directly into the river, and that's impacting our aquifer. And you said when you were a girl, you swam in the river, drank the water from the river without any treatment. And that is the reality of today, that it's very hard to find a river anywhere that is clean enough to drink right out of the cup, no? You know, wild water, drinking wild water is something that we've lost, just like most of us have lost the night skies. Mm. I think it's it's like part of our inheritance as human beings that we should have these experiences of drinking water straight from a stream or a, or a spring, a high mountain stream. And um, so a lot of a lot of what I do comes out of the idea that uh, you evaluate your actions looking ahead seven generations. Yeah. Now we've had a chance to do it for three generations at Rancho La Farta. Um, mm -hmm. But with the contamination of our wells, with uh, beginning to see the degradation of the water table, um, we had kind of a double challenge. One was how to generate cleaner, better water for irrigation. And the other because one, it mattered to you. You said that earlier. It matters to you, the water that you use in irrigating the plants. Tell, explain absolutely. that. Yeah, yeah well, uh, anybody who farms or who grows plants knows that if you're using um, water that has high salinity, the, the ground becomes hydrophobic. The plants can't uptake the water. You can water them all you want, but they're not going to do well. As soon as you have a rain and it washes the salts out of the ground, the plants shoot up magnificently. Um, and heavy metals accumulate in the soil. And the living organisms cannot handle all of the contaminants that we're putting into our soils. So yes, production really suffers. And the quality of the food, the nutrition. The mineral content alone, right? Yeah. The, one of the beauties in our area, because it's a granitic landscape, is very high rich mineral soils. And my father felt that was essential for human health. He would say, you, you cannot raise a, a strong uh, people on degraded soils, on weak soils. So it's been true since the dawn of time. <laughs> so um, there was an abundance of sewage and an issue with the contamination of the watershed and our aquifer. 
And we also needed water for irrigation. So I was lucky enough to meet a Belgian man who had developed a variety of biological treatment plants in different parts of Mexico. His name is Eric van der Müller, And he has uh, an amazing repertory of challenges that he has dealt with, from creating wetlands for Chivas, which is the largest soccer stadium in Mexico, and you can imagine the volume of urine that gets generated in that environment. And so very big challenge for being able to transform that water. And he was able to do that. That's amazing. And then also he worked for Coca-Cola and he also worked for tequila. It's a high fiber. All require water. Lots of sugar. <laughs> and, you know, when you have these extremes, you have to develop a lot of tools. So he um, he came to us and looked at our unique circumstance and um, realized that there there was an opportunity there with so much domestic sewage that needed to be handled. So anaerobic biodigestion is what our gut does. It's some microbiome of our gut um, contained in tanks and this um, upflow uh, biodigestion that is amazing. That are in these tanks are basically using the same the same organisms that live in our gut. And they're the original organisms. And I'm going to repeat myself here because I just love them. Good. So uh, archaea is the name of those original organisms that are methanogenic. They were the precursors to uh, bacteria. And they were the first life on this planet. Archaea means the ancient ones in Greek. I love it. So the archaea do the majority of the work in digesting um, all of the nutrients that are in domestic sewage. So the three biodigesters, enormous biodigesters that we're using, are doing 85% of the job. And so our microbiome, the, the microorganisms in the soil and the microorganisms that are helping to turn sewage into clean water. So uh, it's harnessing biology. And it, it's so incredible how the planet has all the regenerative capacity. It's interesting because we were talking about this a little bit earlier, that a lot of what we're talking about is going back to nature, to natural processes, working with nature instead of against nature. But at the same time, we really are also talking about science. We're talking about natural biology. And, and and I think, you know, sometimes we tend to think it's one or the other, but it really isn't. True biologists, we're talking about biology working with nature's powers because the answers pretty much always are there, you know, as we discover. Because the people is most participatory and recognize the values of the nature. And it is beautiful because the people made a new form to think about the nature. Mm-hmm. Right. If we can if we can talk about nature not just as being something quote unquote old fashioned, uh, but actually very innovative, you know, and and working with these processes and we can be much more effective in everything we're doing. And I was interested when you said about the the biodigester and the microbiome, that it's like the one in our stomach, but also like the one in the soil, right? That we know more, and we're still learning a lot, about the microbiome in our digestive system, and we know a tiny fraction about 
what's in the soil's microbiome. And where those studies are fortunately really going forward. But it's really both of those processes, they're very similar, which is why, of course, similarly, the food that we eat from natural, healthy soil reacts better in our body. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, I'm not a scientist, but it kind of makes sense to me. But actually, what you said about water, salinity, heavy metals, and these, it's a perfect lead into my friend BJ over here, who has figured out innovative ways to solve pretty much all those problems. I don't know about all the <laughs> I'm counting to- on this group solving all the problems. <laughs> I, I have to say that all of us on this panel, we're all mimicking nature. You know, that's, and that's what it's about. And I, not, I want to obviously talk about what I do, but I'm an organic farmer, uh, avocado farmer. And um, after about three years after I bought my farm, uh, somebody wanted to try to sell me some microbes that I could add to my irrigation system to help do exactly what you're saying, create airspace in the soil. And so they came out to my farm and tested my soil and they go, hmm, are you sure you're not using our product already? I go, no, no, I'm not. I'm just doing Guess what <laughs> I'm just farming in a proper way because they were used to testing my neighbor's soil. There was all it was dead. There was nothing alive in the soil anymore, which is what you get under conventional farming right. with pesticides, herbicides and a uh, lot of chemical inputs. And then you have to put more. Input. And on the same note, I put in a septic system on, on the farm 25 something years ago. All my neighbors, they pumped their septic tanks out. I never had to pump mine out because it's alive. It's doing its job. It's digesting the sewage. So, exactly. you know, people just don't. Simple solutions. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, you're a scientist. You're a scientist. We're not anti-science here. Nature isn't anti-science. It is fundamental science. It's the, it's the building blocks of it all. Now, we have a follow-up question for you, Sarah, from the audience. Um, how expensive is the water treatment system that you've put in place? In context, how easily could a small community afford one, like Valle de Guadalupe or one of the small towns in the Valle de Guadalupe? We determined to bring our water up to California Title 22 standards, which added another layer of, uh, of cost to the project. We also made it beautiful, which is <laughs> not strictly necessary, but still amazing. Because <laughs> I wanted it to inspire people. Sure. So we first created a prototype that treats three liters of water per second, but we're building a much larger plant that treats 30 liters of water per second. 20 liters will be sewage from the town, and the other 10 will be what is generated at Rancho La Puerta and at the residences at Rancho La Puerta. So as far as cost goes, for that three liters per second of water, if you did the biodigesters, the biofilters, and the wetlands, it would probably be about $400,000. But that is producing that amount of water all the time. It never stops. It's a constant flow. And so all those three liters per second isn't a huge volume. Well, like 30 liters per second is a massive volume of water. Um, it, Because it's flowing 24-7, it's a remarkable amount of water. Water costs on in Tecate have gone up tremendously. And I I do know that both Ensenada and Tijuana experienced severe disruption in water availability in this last year. So I think, you know, the return on investments for these kinds of um these kinds of innovative plants and systems, they they really need to be seen over the long term. But we know that 
they're going to become more and more financially reasonable as every year. As time goes by, water will only become more expensive. More expensive and harder to come by, potable water, even agricultural water. As you said earlier, it's 1% of the water that's available. Right, that- but you're solving two things. You're, one, you're creating clean water, but you're also treating the sewage. So it's two-in-one kind of thing where usually they cities, they those separate, those separate units. Yeah. That's right. And they really need to be one. The other two components that are important in the system is that um, the, our, the archaea are methanogenic. They create methane gas, and that's biogas. And with we always think of methane as being bad if it goes into the atmosphere, but it, when you do is capture it, use it as it's, fuel. It's 28 times worse for the atmosphere than CO2. So capturing methane is really important. Um, and that biogas, then uh, we run through a generator and it goes back to the grid. And although the, the plant requires a couple more months before it's fully up and, and running, uh, we're expecting that the energy that goes back into the grid will offset the energy to pump that water. So we, we are expecting this to be net zero. And the only waste product that comes from this is the mineralized sludge at the bottom of the biodigesters, which gets composted with the wetland plants. And so we get compost. You're regenerating the soil at the same time, which is incredible. Now, one of the things you mentioned before that one of the limitations on the system you have is a, a, a stream variant in alkalinity or in heavy metals, but this is something that you figured out how to address in your system. Yeah, so we, we use, as you know, ocean water to um, uh, for desalinate. We desalinate ocean water, not the traditional way, which is done with with uh, reverse osmosis system. Rather, we use what nature, we mimic nature. Again, we use the sun, creating clouds, and and then condense the clouds and make rain. And so the byproduct, of course, that comes out of that is salt and, and, and uh, some heavy metals. We do it at low temperatures, so some of the minerals travel into the clouds and, and are part of the water, which somebody asked me earlier about, oh, how many minerals are in your water? And I said, well, you know, minerals can really only be absorbed by the body if they're organic minerals. And organic minerals you can really only get from plants. And so there can be all the minerals in water you want, but... You're not absorbing. You're not absorbing them. They need to go through a plant to become absorbable. But anyway, so the, um, yeah, the salt, um, we then, we filter that brine. We're 83% roughly efficient in converting ocean water to drinking water compared to reverse osmosis system that are about 50% efficient. 50% 50% of that water goes back in the ocean usually. With double salinity, which with, then affects... Exactly. A lot more salt and that creates dead zones in the ocean, mm-hmm. impacts, you know, the wildlife, you know, the fish and whatever. And so, because uh, they need oxygen and basically all that salt kills the oxygen yep. in the ocean. So, but, um, but yeah, so we, uh, we filtered, but we also, we have um, a ozone chamber that we can, we fill it, a chamber full of ozone, which you can generate out of air. So, and ozone is a gas. We know it. It's out there. And, um, but then we infuse water into the ozone chamber, which attaches, the ozone attaches itself to the heavy metals and pull them out. Which is fantastic. So, which is a really nice way. And then we can put the 
the remaining brine in ponds, just like they do in France and all over the world. To the south of here, they have these salt ponds. And uh, as somebody suggested to me the other day, you know, we really should stop making all those that salt everywhere. We should just use the salt from desalination plants, you know, and there would be plenty of salt. And I've used of salt. It's very good. Right, exactly. <laughs> So there are ways to do it, but I but I have to say, I mean, I'm I'm converting ocean water to drinking water because I wanted to prove that it could be done in a sustainable way and an efficient way and an efficient way. And so, but the the amount of rain and, and moisture that we have that falls on, on ground, I truly believe if we treated it properly, it would be enough water for all of us. If we, I don't think if sixty percent didn't roll on. Yes, exactly. And we had good soil and. Every product we use, every table, every piece of plastic, every shoe, every cell phone that we use all require water to make. And we, certainly north of the border, we're very liberal about just getting new phones and new this and new that and whatever all the time. And we're not thinking, we're only thinking that water is the thing we drink or maybe water our plants with. But water is used in everything. And so we need to be more conservative. I mean, I grew up in a country where, in Europe, that when we left the room in the house, we turned the light off. Okay. It didn't stay on. And when we, when we were done using our water, we turned the water off. Mm-hmm. You know, you brush your teeth, you turn it on, and you turn it on and off. So everything was done that way. To, I think to burn a 60-watt light bulb for, I don't know, 24 hours uses 4,000 gallons of water. You know, just because don't of the generating of the electricity and the cooling down of the turbines and whatever it takes, pumping it, you know, around, it's it's crazy when we think about it. So just, you know, it comes down to what you're doing over there, educating, educating the kids, because we were educated. We knew to turn the light off. In, in Denmark, we have not one or two recycling bins. We have seven recycling bins, because we know what goes in what recycling bin. And I remember one time I was back visiting, and I had an old farm there, and it was around the holidays, um, and I put the wrong thing in the wrong bin and the garbage collector had no problem knocking on my door going hey i'm not picking up your garbage because this is in the wrong bin so it took i think a six pack of good beer to finally get him to pick it up but but yeah also made with water also made with water exactly i mean it takes water to make a plastic bottle it takes more water to make a glass bottle it takes water to do everything so i think if we if we really think about it teach the kids because a lot of the parents don't know it, but they can teach the parents, make a game out of it, right. maybe give them points in school for converting their parents to turn off the lights and doing things like that. That's ex- you, you know. said it exactly right, because I think actually the funny thing is, you know, the older we get, the harder we are to move a little bit on things, and myself included. But when, you know, kids learn about conservation, recycling, you know, limiting use, they're the ones following behind you, turning the lights off. They are the future. They're the ones like we can hopefully help to gather information, teach young kids, teach young adults um, really how to manage these limited resources for the future. And I want to follow up on what you just said, that you're talking about cleaning water. You're talking about getting water where we need it from the ocean, which is the one water source that's growing instead of shrinking. And there's a problem there. Another good reason to use desal. But I want to go back to what you said about what we really need to learn to do is manage the water that we have naturally. How do we increase that 40% filtration to 80 to 100? What can we do? You two, these are your expertise, I think. 
Yeah, well, I think we're going back to mimicking nature. Mm. I mean, because if we get our hands off of uh, nature, then nature is going to fix itself. The point with nature is that sometimes the nature's times are not the same as our times. Ah. And that's what we need to get involved ourselves in. A longer I, process. Exactly. So I think that's important. I, I think you mentioned that, that um, as we increase just 1% of organic matter, we're able to actually infiltrate uh, per hectare 250,000 uh, uh, liters of, of, of water. So 1% increase in the organic matter in the soil has that dramatic uh, a shift in the ability of the soil to absorb and maintain exactly. that water. That's I mean, that's, amazing. That's a lot of water. Okay, it's a lot of water. And let, me, <laughs> let me give you an example. When I joined the ranch, uh, it seemed like my dad had like a present for me because he said... <laughs> You know, the average is like nine inches per year. We got 20 inches on that year. You know what we did? Nothing. Because our soul, our souls were compacted. Mm -hmm. So in three, four months, we're already in drought mode. Already back where you were before. At, at, and that's true for us in both sides of the border here. We had all this rainfall this year, but what do we have to show for it? And that's where exactly. you comes in. Nowadays, with six inches, just six inches, at the right time, obviously, we can actually go all the year around with the same cattle with no supplementation. So it makes a big difference between 20 inches that we're almost wasted all of them to six inches that you actually store. Because the largest storage of water should be the first, yeah, the first uh, few inches. Mm -hmm. so sometimes we celebrate when we say, oh, the dams are now full. Exactly. Well, That's I don't know. I, what, I don't know if I should celebrate that. The water should be in the soil, not in the dam. Aha, bravo. Well, because it's sitting there and it's evaporating. You know, when you go past, sure. You know, like exactly. like Uber or whatever, it's sitting out it. It's evaporating and it moves through the Colorado River and down from Northern California to Southern California. So I think sometimes I think the whole global warming and the big picture is hard for people to understand, and and kids too. They talk global warming and until they really understand it. But there are things they can understand on an everyday level. For instance, it drives me crazy when I see people throw vegetables in the garbage can. It absolutely drives me crazy. I'm like, wait a minute, don't you have a composting bin? You know, Everybody should be composting. Yeah. I mean, there should be a law that says you have this cannot go in the garbage. You need some compost in your backyard. And you don't need a lot of room to compost. No, you don't. And that compost would improve the soil and and help keep the water where we need it and produce better keep food. Keep it out of the dump, put keep it in the soil. Yeah, exactly. No. And I think to both of your point and to your question about like getting more water in the ground, it's like, um, you know, one fun fact that Brad Lancaster, a water harvester practitioner in Tucson and teacher, you know, the region globally kind of like moving these things forward uh, has on his website is more water falls in Tucson as rain in the average year than the, uh, you know, the average person uses of their phone in that same year. So all those resources are here for us to use, right? And so how do we also increase that? Uh, it's not just entirely up to us, right, to get all of that water in the ground. That's kind of like why I focus on the communication and making this knowledge more accessible. Um, because collectively, I think this is how we're going to get more water in the ground. Understanding why the compost of composting is so, it's the process of composting is so important and vital to, um, you know, replenishing these, these, these nutrients, uh, the health of our soils. 
and in our last game. Another game I have for you to teach your kids, uh, not your kids, but kids. But the people that were but, uh, collective. I don't know how many you have, but uh, <laughs> but when I'm in the city and I see water run down the gutter, I chase it. I chase it all the way back to the source and I turn it off. <laughs> or I knock on the door and I tell people, what are you doing? And maybe it's a game for the kids. How many faucets did you turn off this week? Right. It's an, or did you turn on that water? Yeah, it, what, where do you think it's coming from? Right. But another, thing, another thing that we like to uh, talk about is like the same water uh, that we're using now, the same water that we, you know, the dinosaurs were, were drinking and we're, know, doing our, we're, we're not creating new water. Right. We're simply yep. reusing it, which is an incredible point. This is Natalia Badan, who's with us in the audience, was talking during the break about a, a bathroom that they put in place at her winery here in the valley, where all of the water, except for the one you use to wash your hand, is simply just going through a system and being reused and reused, because that's what water does. And the sooner we all appreciate that, I mean, it, you know, what you were saying a minute ago, if we talk about global climate change and that seems so daunting and it feels like, what can I do? I'm just one person. But if you talk about the steps that conserving water, reusing water, recycling water is one tiny step or composting, which will improve the soil, which will then keep more water, that every tiny step that each one of us can do in our own space, however small or big it may be. This was the message of the Kiss the Ground film that I found so empowering. Whatever your space of control is, if it's one square foot, a yard or a hundred miles or however many acres you have a lot, uh, you know, you are impacting your life, your community life. And then, you know, people just want to feel like, I, I don't think people wake up every day and think, I want to make the decision that's the worst thing for me, my community, the environment. No, people really want to do the right thing. They just need to have the tools or the information and steps, not like it's your job to fix climate change. That's overwhelming. But what can I do in the water sphere? That's what you teach. So tell us some more about what you teach. Yeah. And you're all three of you are working in an aquifer environment here, too. And I think there's some interesting dialogue to have about that. Yeah, I think it's, again, sort of like, uh, investing in that and in, in that local like starting from like you know not getting too overwhelmed with we need to fix the the Colorado River rivers right now Lake Mead is going down all these different things mm -hmm. it's like it starts in your home it starts in your backyard mm -hmm. uh, we actually have a program at Watershed Mastering called Build Your Own Basin where we provide people with like you know the steps to build the basin look at your landscapes or like come up with the calculations and stuff like that so they can sort of like estimate like oh I have a ponding issue there it's like oh is that an opportunity to put the water back into the ground uh -huh. now and so uh, we sort of like make it so that people can start looking and start small and simple and then learn from that and then start expanding, getting their neighbors involved. And, and you know, at the end of the day, yes, we want to get the water back into the ground. And, and that's the goal. But it's also uh, um, it's not about the rain garden necessarily. It's about like people learning about the possibilities, right? How, how we can work together and what's under our control uh, to be able to, you know, this thing that's very important to us. Uh, to be able to do that and not depend on other maybe slower process hierarchies uh procedures that maybe don't um you know sort of like react in a timely manner or set up for um for communities to be able to benefit from them in that you know same period so yeah we, i we all, think yeah we, also, yeah we also need to teach our kids about wanting organic food uh -huh. because then we encourage organic farming and then get away from those big industry farms that Spray pesticides everywhere, herbicides and whatever. And it's funny that they've been, but back to organic farming and how like your soil was alive. It's like, it's funny how it, it, that's thought of as an alternative. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. not, it's not really like the way to go. And it's like, oh, you're doing all these things. 
Because I don't know, Keely, okay, I don't know what the percentage is of organic uh, food sales these days, but it used to be 7 8% or something. It's very small. That basically means that 92% of the population don't give a crap about what they eat. And that's bad. It should be the other way around. But if the kids. Maybe, maybe not that they don't give a crap, but maybe that, you know, they need to understand why it matters to their health, to their community, to water, the soil, the climate. You know, if people, if the connection is made for people, again, I choose to believe that people want to do the right thing. They just don't always have good information because the information and sort of from the more corporate standard conventional is big and powerful and constant. And we're here to provide sort of a more balanced uh, presentation of the the world. Yeah, I think like, you know, people are worried about their daily survival before doing these things, streamlining. And so like that might not be at the forefront of their minds. And so I think as scientists, as organizers, as people like pushing this dialogue forward, it's, it's up to us to to maybe kind of like, you know, the question is how do we integrate it in, 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 in people's minds? So I think that's, at least that's how I see my task. Yeah. Having that, looking at that as a priority and as a, you know, as a wonderful resource. I mean, your place uh, in Tecate is a, a perfect example of how people are hungry to, to eat better and live a better life. They don't, there's no processed food, I'm sure, at your place. So it's just food. It's right. It's just food, real food. And we we harvest for our guests for the kitchens three times a week. So they're always eating something that was in the ground well, that morning or just the previous morning. And something I've read or heard before about your farm, not only are you providing that produce for the guests at the ranch, who are obviously there because they're focused on health and wellness, but you also provide food to hospitals and the community, schools and so forth. I mean, I think that's part of it. You know, we have to make sure that this, what we're talking about, gets to the largest audience imaginable. What your point I thought you were about to make, which is, you know, people struggle. They're busy. They're working two jobs. You know, food is expensive and organic food is more expensive. And and those of us on the, you know, who are working in for systemic change, you know, it's our job to try to level that playing field so that the subsidies aren't so disproportionate toward bad food and rather make good food more available and accessible and affordable. But at the same time, we try to move that needle. We also want to explain and educate why does it matter? Why, why does it, what's the difference for my health, my microbiome, uh, my community, the environment? And it, one of those will resonate with someone. Go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say, why is it worth our time, right? Why is it worth our time to like invest in like having tending to your garden and putting these systems in and, and observing? Like, yeah, I think that's kind of like, yeah, it is worth it. The place both also need to change the switch because the people think only in the And in this, in this, in this case, in this study, to think in solution. Uh, not just problems, but solutions. Yeah, there it goes. Because the, the people think all the problems, 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 and don't think very well. Well, that, I've been like, that's, that's human nature, right? We get overwhelmed with the problems that we're facing in our life. And so we're a little bit in crisis mode and we have to get out of crisis mode before we can move forward. And as you said, a lot of these solutions are not immediate. It's not like, boom, I'm going to change this. The world is fixed tomorrow. These are solutions that have a very long arc and you have to sort of think forward. But we also have to be at the point where we're able to do that. Yeah. You know, I think the beauty of what we do is that um, every year you're improving. Uh Uh-huh. Every year is better. It's not like, okay, it's going to take me five years to get to, yeah, but every year you do it, 
you're getting better food, you're getting more wildlife, you're getting more life in general. I mean, like Gabe Brown said in his book, you know, he says, uh, yeah, I used to wake up every day to see what I need to kill. <laughs> now I wake up every day how to promote life. Uh-huh. And that's kind of changed everything. Some people, like consumers, ask me, how do I know if the farmer is doing a good job? Well, it's not rocket science. Use all your senses. Does it smell good? Does it taste good? I mean, we haven't really lost the ability to, to sense the food. Remember that food still is the terroir or the microbiology. So We might not know those terms, but we can taste it. Yeah. Does it look good? Uh-huh. Does it have life on it? I mean, if you use all your senses, you know that what you're getting is something good for you and for your health. But when you when I see a new subdivision going in, what's the first thing that pops up are two, three, four fast food places, you know, where you could cook at home. I mean, you're talking about economics, and, and certainly organic food is a little bit more maybe, although prices have come down. But instead of building... For fast food places, if you put in a little organic store or a garden or whatever, exactly, community garden, what? Like it's common in Europe. You know, you don't have to live in an apartment, but you can rent a little space or provide it by the community, and you can cook at home a lot cheaper than you can go out and eat processed food. Even with just very simple indicators like, uh, do you hear the birds on those fields? Mm-hmm. How many insects do you see? See, I got uh, Gabe Brown visiting or ranch. Wait, in, uh, tell everybody who Gabe Brown is. Okay, see. Gabe Brown, I would say Gabe Brown is one of the most famous farmers. Uh, he, he wrote a book. He's uh, from Dirt to Soil book. It's been the, the, the book um, the, uh, with the most uh, uh, books sold um, the last four years on, on farming. Yeah. And he went to visit my ranch in Chihuahua, and he said, Alex, because, well, I'm Alex in, in Mexico, but I'm Alejandro here. <laughs> Alex, I had never seen so many insects in all the states of every state in the U.S. Uh-huh. So we have a big problem of the decline of insects worldwide. And it's because of the use of so many chemicals we're using. And that has a huge impact on everything that we're talking it's the about. The entire, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we talk about the microbiology, microherd, as we call it. But the insects is foundation of a lot of things. Every time you kill a pest, which is not a pest because maybe the plant is weak, <laughs> you're killing another 700 insects. Uh-huh. Benef- good in- benefit insects. Right, and healthier plants are sort of stronger and capable of resisting those yes. insects or pests on their own without resorting to the herbicides and pesticides. Yes. So, yeah. Um, tell me some more about what you're doing that you haven't talked about. Well, I was just thinking of what Sara shared in terms of like, you know, drinking from the river and like that not being like available to us anymore. Um, And I don't know why that was making me think of like the way that I think of like what we practice, right? I feel like as, 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 you know, environmental, whatever we want to call it, we're reintroducing these, these concepts uh, that to me have been taken away from us. Uh, You know, how to work the land, how to read the land, how to put a plant in the ground, how to look after a plant. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do in terms of, you know, green infrastructure, water harvesting, industrial resource conservation, those are, we've put those names to these practices that people that have lived here, indigenous, you know, communities that have lived here for New thousands of years. Old practice. Right, exactly. And so, like, 
I think that's that's something that's very important to to call it the work that we do to really honor um, those practices and the people that you know learn to live in these lands and the semi-arid region, whatever we want to call this region of the world, before us, before urbanization, industrialization, modern times, whatever we want to call it. I, I think it's it's I think that's one of the other things that I like to communicate when we're talking about that is you know being stewards of the land. We're respecting the land. We're forming a relationship with them. So and we have a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, indigenous cultures in that regard yeah. across the globe truly yeah yeah yes yeah. when when you live in a way that everything is re- your relations and everything is alive and everything is interconnected and everything is intelligent mm. then you know that when you are applying pesticides and you're killing the insects you're killing the songbirds mm-hmm. and we have yeah then the bees that pollinate the crops but that's one of the that's one of the big challenges Looking ahead, is all of all of our farming is dependent on bees for pollination. A hundred percent. So my my fellow avocado farmers, my neighbors, when I first bought my farm, they were all slathering their trees with brown, who knows what it was, with helicopters. It was like Vietnam, kind of coming in low and spraying brown stuff on all the trees, getting rid of the mites or whatever um, thrips or whatever it was. And I said, well, I'm not going there, so. I'm going to start putting beneficial insects out on my farm. So we would get beneficial insects from insect trees and attach the lacewing larvae to each tree. We'd go around each tree, we'd get lacewing larvae cards, and the lacewing larvae would crawl up on the fruit and eat the thrips and whatever. And so we did it for years. And, and after a while, we really didn't have to do it anymore because they were there and we would plant native plants to where they could overwinter when there were no avocados on the trees. And the only places I really had problems were always on the border of where my non-organic neighbors were. I don't know if they were all jumping no over. No man's land. They were all jumping over on my side because they knew the helicopters were coming. But <laughs> um, but, um, but they they knew in, in the center of the ranch, I mean, you know, far a ways away from the borders, there was a perfect balance of everything and we had no pest problems. And to this day, still have no, after 25 years, no pest problems and they're still over there helicoptering. Claudia, we have a question for you. Um, somebody wants to hear about the water system that you're working on with Clo de Tres Cantos that you mentioned a little bit earlier. Can you tell us about that system? Yes, this, uh, excuse me. This system is um, a wetland, artificial wetland. We used for a um, for for if the captation me capture capture water for the for the rain uh-huh. and in this chair is very very beautiful because the rain is extraordinary and yeah and the, this was a good year to do it it's a good example because uh, uh, need to more uh, the side spot captation for 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 water because all the water uh, is uh, to to lost in this case uh, in the there are a lot of um, reservoirs yeah. but this is not ecological reservoirs right. and in this case is ecological reservoir because have a um, Technology for um, filter the water or 
into the ground, the ground where it's needed. You know, it's interesting. Um, I also sit on the board of UC Press, which is the publishing house for the University of California system. But they, of course, have published quite a bit on water. And um, I remember reading early on that, you know, one of the ways in which California truly failed is that, you know, we largely get our water from the Colorado River. And so early on, we dismantled a lot of capture and transport systems that began or could have been or could have been continued in favor of the notion that we have all the water we need from the Colorado. Why do we need to worry about it? And it's that attitude, which is unfortunate, like we're, we're, we're paying for it now, but we have the opportunity to fix that. But when you can truly capture the water, I mean, I think about in my own space this year with this rainfall that we've had, of course, my garden is happy and green. But what did I do with all that water? I live near the ocean and there are two canyons on either side of me that are formed completely by water running off into the ocean. And on these heavy rain days, these last three months, it just looks like rivers going right out to the ocean. This is potable water. This was someone's drinking water. This was irrigation water. Then I think, how come we're not capturing that and bringing it back before it joins the ocean and needs your process to be reutilized by us? You know, we really, we have to get outside the box. And I love what everyone here is talking about in ways that you're doing that. And especially here in the VIA, in your system, is is uh, tell us about cost because we talked about yours yours was obviously the creme de la creme system and maybe your system could also be replicated for less money um but what about the system that you put in there at the winery is this system expensive could it be replicated elsewhere in the valle or beyond <laughs> See, <laughs> yes this, this is expensive but it's effective uh-huh. well i mean and and there's some amount of investment. Obviously, does each individual home or business have to do this? No, not necessarily. But in the collective realm, within a single community, within a collection like an organization like Provino, this is the kind of organization that can work collectively to bring this kinds of resources to more of the members and the community members where they're operating. I think this is impressive. This is important because in this part of the of the Mexico, the all the all the water depends the subterranean. Exactly, all of the water, right? Because everyone here is operating on well water for the most part. No, no, there are no rivers. There are no no superficial and very little rain, the, even the less rain than we have. have. <laughs> and the water. What is the rainfall here in the in the in Ensenada Valley? Um, <laughs> two drops today here. <laughs> That's what it feels like. No, what I live. What I live. <laughs> No, to not enough. Me, me let mass morale. Okay, yeah, the same San Diego eleven inch, which is not dissimilar from what you were talking. You said nine is ours, and now I've got more. Now you've got twenty, so we need we to do what nine. you're doing. No, no, there are more in Chihuahua. Well, we got nine, in because Chihuahua has like three regions. Something I would like to add into this conversation is. Sometimes we as ranchers, farmers, think about, oh, great that my neighbor is not doing this because I'm getting all the water from a neighbor. Mm. But that is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. I think we, we are within an ecosystem. We are within a community. Yeah. And we need to share. This is not working in a corporation that, oh, my God, it's only me. This should be a public knowledge. Because, for example, my ranch will not be sustainable if I don't help my neighbors. Yes. It becomes a disaster when it rains a lot. 
And then you, I had like a, over a meter of water, three, four feet coming from my neighbors and making a lot of destruction. So it's, we always have the open door for them to come over. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are going to change at their own time. But at least I have two neighbors that already are making these practices. Huh. So we're making the area bigger. And then that will be eventually a fl- flourishing community. And that's an interesting point, too, that it's not just you doing it, but your neighbor and your neighbor. And as that space that's engaging in the practices you're talking about grows, that that impact on the rainfall and the water capture is exponentially larger. Sorry. It's not like one plus one plus one equals three, but much greater. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Uh, and also, we work very close with a lot of conservation, nature conservation organizations. Okay. And they actually, I mean, one of the things, the beautiful things that we have seen is the increase of wildlife, all kind of wildlife. We work very close with the bird, migratory bird conservations. And obviously, if the birds come to my ranch, it will be much easier for them to go to the next ranch. Exactly. They don't have a dead zone in between in which they're at risk, which is true. I don't want to be an island of grass in the middle middle of... Yes, of course. Uh, One of the things that we found at Rancho La Puerta is that during the summer, it's 10 degrees cooler at Rancho La Puerta than it is in Tecate. And we've been planting trees for years, and we're now focused on a 10-year program to plant trees in Tecate. Um, but that makes an enormous difference. It makes an enormous difference to the individual who is sitting under the shade of the tree, but it makes an enormous difference to the evapotranspiration to generate clouds to create rain. Even the mist. We're seeing at our ranch, which is in the Chihuahua Desert, some mist, more days with mist, mm-hmm. and also mushrooms now. Another great, con- another oh. one of the ancient. Oh, yeah, mushrooms. <laughs> Which you can watch our panel on mushrooms, also on UCTV, small blood. Uh, no, no, I, I think that that really is the energy that we're talking about. It's not just one person doing this, but it creates the example. But as that community grows and grows, that, act, that impact is so extraordinary. And you mentioned the temperature shift, and you talked about that earlier, that the, that the temperature at your farm at 1030 in the morning was... 10 degrees cooler than your and you neighbors. I'm talking about the area. I think I'm about five degree in, in hot summers, five degree lower than some of the neighboring properties. I mean, it creates like a whole ecosystem, like a whole area of, it creates its own uh, uh, ecosystem, like temperatures and water and green and all of that. This is what I like about these kinds of conversations because we never know what thing is going to resonate with anyone in the audience, digital or otherwise. But but there's something in your life. Well, everything in your life is directly impacted by water. But something hopefully that you hear from this group of people uh, gathered here today will make you think, what change can I make? What small change? I'm going to butcher this quote, but we know the quote that says a journey of 10,000 miles begins with a single step. That's it. If everybody makes one step, just one step, whether it's turning off the lights, whether it's reusing, recycling, capturing, and then how that can affect the entire community around us, the water we're drinking, will it be cleaner? Will we have to treat it less? Will there be more rainfall? Will the temperatures be cooler? All of these things are hugely beneficial. And we started at the beginning. I mentioned my friend Yolanda, who's doing our simultaneous translation. And she works in the crisis of migration. And one of, one of the things that's happening, and we all understand this, in addition to everything we've talked about, 
is that migration of humans around the planet is affected by climate change and lack of access to water and extreme temperatures. So everybody benefits. If more people are stable in their own environment, everybody benefits. And so there's so many reasons for all of us to truly stay focused on this important issue that, as you said, covers everything that we do. Yeah, yeah focused and like also open to you know innovative approaches. Like I think we haven't. I was talking to somebody earlier about gray water and the potential to like use that you know from your washing machine, from your bathtub, like all that water. Like you can be feeding trees instead of like going down the drain. More example, and I did want to mention to your point. I think in your previous presentation you mentioned how it rains more now. Uh, where you are uh, because you're introduced and, and you're calling, you know, right? Like, like doing all of this, the lower temperatures. Yeah. Anecdotally, what is see like in really hot cities, like cities that don't have a lot of yeah. canopy coming. Yes. Clouds will go around it. They just like the donut effect. But, like, it, it, like, it's amazing, really. I mean, it's amazing what's going on up there, like the flows or the, or the clouds. And, you know, we, we usually uh, talk about having something to cover the soil, mm-hmm. a living plant or litter or something. But if you see that the first shield we have is the clouds. Yeah. I mean, and in a very dry, degraded places, there will not be clouds. We, we don't feel it when it's hot and when you get a cloudy day. Oh, my God, it's so cool. Can it be more powerful to say that we can, in fact, make rain? We can affect our environment. We can improve it for everyone. And on that really high note, I'm going to close the panel, but open it up now. Thank you. So uh, if anybody has a question for any of the panelists, I see Natalia Badan, front and center. Okay, fire away. The use of ga- gaviones mm-hmm. in the dry rivers, well, dry when it doesn't rain. Have you seen uh, differences that last uh, for years? Can you tell us a little bit about it? I'm very, very curious. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think, you know, in... Amongst those practitioners, we might have different opinions as to uh, implementing gabions, right, in, in, uh, as, a, as a restoration measure. But I've seen really good examples uh, in Sonora, particularly, of these uh, structures being implemented. And I've seen structures that are one year, five years, 10, 20 years long, and it's doing, they're doing their work. Explain you know, what that means, because not everyone knows, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you know, what these gabions are doing, these rock gabions are essentially kind of like a bunch of rocks put into like boxes. Wire boxes. I see. We've all like, seen them. Yes, to put them like you know, you put them strategically and on a at a stream at a riverside where there's a lot of erosion, head cuts. Uh, you know, the energy of the water kind of like carving into the ground, and so you put those in there to kind of slow spread and sink the water in an effort to stem the floodplain, right? So the area where all of the water is going back into the ground. Um, and like I mentioned, what I've seen and what I've you know been again, we as practitioners have different opinions on that about what we're putting into the ground and stuff like that, where we're, being, where we're sourcing the rock from. But I see really good um, recruitments of native plants, uh, extending the floodplain, um, particularly in, in the, you know, San Pedro, when I've, like, where I've seen it most, like, right, like reintroducing um, uh, or, or uh, the re- cottonwoods appearing again. Cottonwoods and like willows and like trees like that. And yes, Quake Philosophicals is a really good example. Uh, particularly yeah. Rancho San Bernardino is the one that I'm talking about. Right. Really good people doing really good work out there. Uh, and it's amazing to see what they've done in terms of like um, regenerative uh, agriculture, cattle racing, like yeah. different approaches. Um, but I, I feel like Alejandro will also be a great person. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm very familiar with, with the area. I'm actually sitting on the board of these guys that had been able to actually get the creeks to be perennial creeks when there was really no water anymore. The only limitation that I see on the gavions is that usually the gavions work pretty well on riparian areas. Mm -hmm. But we need actually the, the act or the livestock to cover the whole area. Because you see very beautiful where the water where the water used to be, you know, be beautiful where you say with uh, these uh, woody plants and these grasses, and we were actually the ones recommending when uh, Carlos to to add a livestock. And many people have this uh, idea of livestock is pretty destructive. It is indeed if it's, if you don't have control or if you don't mimic the migration of animals. But when you have control over the livestock, it's actually a great tool to put biology, where we're lacking the biology. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I'd like to mention uh, another important relative, which is the beaver. Ah, see. And the and beavers in the landscape, especially in California, created massive wetlands and ways in which uh, infiltration of water and tremendous habitat diversity would occur. So one of the things we can do is imitate the beaver. <laughs> um, we put gabions into an area that flooded uh, about 20 years ago at our farm, and they've done really well. And the difference between a gabion structure and a dam is that the gabion structure holds back the sediment, yeah. and it reduces the erosive force of the water um, and allows the water to still flow through, but without uh, generating more erosion if they're, if they're done properly. And they've been great. We, we have very, very stable slopes, and we were able to recover some of the damage from that the flood did. And the flood only happened because there was a nick point, because there was a big tree and a big boulder and a lot of brush uh, jammed up against it, and then we had a flood behind it. But since we, since we did the, the natural infrastructure work in the channel and around the channel, it's been, it's been beautiful. At, at Rancho Tres Estrellas, at my organic park. I'm, not, I'm going to advocate for beavers a little bit more. <laughs> there really are keystone species, and there really are the ones that are, they're doing, you know, the work that gabions are doing right now. If there were more of our, in our rivers, you know, they would be doing all of this work for us and providing pools of water for deer to, like, drink out of and, like, all these different things. So, yes, gabions, but also beavers even better. ¿Al cuánto tiempo de, de haber este empezado con este manejo de ganado? Empezaron a aparecer eh, pastos nativos. Es decir, yo supongo que primero fueron anuales, pero lo que, lo que se pretende es tener pastos nativos que duren todo el año, ¿no es así? Sí, así es. Lo que, el objetivo es tener eh, diversidad de pastos perennes. Porque aunque nos llueve tres meses, pero podemos guardar el agua capturar el agua y guardarla, entonces esos pastos perennes que pasaron después otros 10 meses sin agua van a retoñar verde. O sea, el verde es muy importante tanto para la microbiología, para el microrebaño, como para nuestro rebaño. Porque póngase a pensar en un momento, el sur de México, el 80% del alimento que se hace, que se le da el ganado, viene de fuera del rancho, de la finca. Entonces, es un efecto tremendo el que tiene el ganado mal manejado en todo el ecosistema. Porque entonces empezamos a abrir más tierras y más tierras porque estamos degradando las que tenemos. Sí. 
Entonces, es, bueno, es, es, el enfoque que tenemos nosotros es, y lo aprendimos a, a golpes y pornazos, como decimos. A prueba y error. A prueba y error. <risa> ¿Por qué? Porque cuando empezamos con este manejo, empezamos a dividir el rancho sin considerar realmente absolutamente nada. Nada más decimos, nuestro peor enemigo es el área grande, hay que dividirla. Pero hay un problema con ese enfoque. Porque ese enfoque no considera las mejores áreas y las peores áreas. Y aparte deja los potreros demasiado grandes. No hay el impacto animal que necesitamos. Ahora nuestro enfoque es muy distinto. Nuestro enfoque es, dime dónde están tus mejores lugares. Y es aplica en todo. ¿eh? Dime, eh, por ejemplo, estamos trabajando ahorita con agaveros en, en, en Jalisco. No empieces en el peor lugar. Es contra la naturaleza, empieza en el mejor lugar. Entonces nos vamos con los ganaderos. Los ganaderos y los agricultores somos gente práctica. Necesitamos ver resultados. Y no en otro rancho, ahí en nuestra finca, en nuestra propiedad. Al enfocar nuestra, nuestras inversiones, al enfocar nuestro esfuerzo en tiempo y dinero en la mejor área, vas a tener resultados en ese, en la siguiente temporada. Entonces esa es la idea. Que empieces a una pequeña escala, por ejemplo, en nuestro caso en la ganadería, con, con intensificar. Y luego, muchas veces, y lo he visto mucho en California, bueno, en muchos lados, pero en California, para hacer un ejemplo, cerquitas. La gente hace un excelente trabajo de pastoreo, pero regresa muy rápido. Entonces, acuérdense, aquí, aquí la clave de todo es la diversidad. Entonces, si tú regresas muy rápido, estás trabajando para dos o tres pastos, sacates, pero los otros le estás dando en la torre. Entonces, el des nosotros tenemos un descanso de un año. Es el contexto. Yo creo que ustedes también están en el mismo contexto. Deberíamos de tener para nuestros animales descansos de un año, un año y medio. ¿Por qué? Porque estamos trabajando para tres, cuatro especies de pastos. Necesitamos tener 100 especies de pastos perennes. This is the rational grazing. <laughs> And you said, follow the cows. <laughs> They know. Independientemente de trabajar en el rancho, escucho que están trabajando con agaveros. La pregunta es, ¿es como digamos en sociedad o es como también hacen consultorías? Lo pregunto por, porque en, en el Delta del Río Colorado se está buscando eh, proyectos de, de, bueno, que combinen la ganadería, silvicultura, etcétera, para eficiencia de agua. Entonces pregunto por si, ¿cómo, cómo operan con los agaveros? ¿Es sociedad o es consultoría? Bueno, en el caso de los agaveros es consultoría, es consultoría. De hecho, esta persona, que yo creo que es de las pocas que está haciendo algo diferente en Jalisco, él se educó primero, que lo hemos estado diciendo aquí, primero es la educación, ¿verdad? O sea, se dio cuenta que hay otras formas. Entonces, uno de los principios de la agricultura eh, regenerativa o agropecuaria, como quien llaman, es el contexto. Entonces, no va a ser el mismo contexto acá porque las lluvias son diferentes, por esto, por lo otro. Entonces, se ve el contexto y se aplican los principios regenerativos, este en este caso en el agave. Eh, por ejemplo, en Chihuahua está interesante también porque el sotol es una bebida nativa de allá y los que estén trabajando con la ganadería regenerativa y tiene sotol, pues ya estamos, o sea, no necesitamos... Hay mucha... Eh, o sea, vamos haciendo las plantas completamente dependientes cuando el suelo está débil. Entonces, ahorita como el agave, y si hay un problema y creo que lo mencionamos, cuando llueve mucho la gente no se mueve. Cuando suben los precios, es terrible para la regeneración, porque caemos en, el, sí. en la zona de confort. Entonces, el agave ahorita está dando mucho dinero, 
¿Y que hay cambios? Pues no, no hay cambios porque yo sigo sacando dinero. ¿Por qué voy a arriesgar? Nosotros tenemos que ver nuestras fincas, nuestras propiedades como un laboratorio y no hacer una prueba en, un, en, en una prueba en el año porque los resultados son anuales. En su contexto, en mi contexto son anuales. O sea, hay que hacer más pruebas, aunque sea a pequeña escala, y quédate con lo que trabaja. Pues no sé si contesté tu pregunta. Eh, sí, yo quería hacer también una pregunta a, a ti, Alex. Eh, por lo que haces, eh, tal vez obtienes más información, ¿no? Eh, eh, cada vez, so, sabemos que cada vez aumenta eh, la superficie para la agroindustria y que gran parte de lo que se produce en esos monocultivos es pastura. Y luego la venden por todo el mundo y contaminan mientras la cultivan y cuando la transportan y todo, ¿no? Um, casi que tengo la respuesta, pero tengo una esperanza en que sea diferente. Ah, hay empresas de estas gigantes, que además estamos hablando de cinco o seis nombres de empresas que manejan la producción mundial de alimentos, ¿no? Que un porcentaje muy grande de las tierras que se cultivan pues son para esto, para pastura. ¿Alguna de estas está probando algo diferente? Porque son el gran, digo, es el muro, ¿no? Sí, no, mira, y para, bueno, sí, la respuesta es sí. <risa> muy bien. Sí, sí hay. La cuestión es que el ganadero y el agricultor somos muy lentos en cambiar. Entonces, a veces nos hemos visto muy frustrados en cambiar. Sí hay gente, ¿verdad? O sea, y vamos a hacer un poquito el contexto y la realidad. Estamos en, estamos en una finca, en un rancho. Hacemos todos, oye, este salió muy inteligente y mándala a la ciudad. No, necesitamos la gente inteligente en el campo. Porque nadie puede vivir, el, el, el doctor, el abogado, necesitan todo comer todos los días. Sí. Y lo que estamos comiendo es muy pobre porque nuestros suelos son muy pobres. Entonces, el enfoque ahora es, ok, ¿cómo podemos? Bueno, ya el agricultor y el ganadero es poco el cambio. Hay cambio, pero hay poco. ¿Cómo podemos enfocarnos en el consumidor? Porque tú puedes decir, bueno, ¿y a mí qué me importa como consumidor? Porque a ti te debe importar la densidad nutricional de los alimentos. O sea, si no hay suelos fértiles, no hay densidad nutricional. O sea, ya olvídese de las... O sea, son los, todos los componentes terciarios que de hecho le dan el sabor. Por eso los alimentos no tienen casi sabor, porque no hay vida en el suelo. Y las corporaciones que ya le están viendo un beneficio económico porque le van a decir al consumidor, si, si yo tengo este proceso regenerativo, yo estoy mejorando, tienes que mejorar el suelo, y a ti te va a ir mejor en la salud. Entonces sí tenemos empresas grandes, que son las que han estado, de hecho, inyectando millones de dólares sí. a la agricultura regenerativa. Sí. Que esperemos que no se distorsione el nombre o no se abuse del nombre, ¿verdad? Pero sí hay esperanza. Yo quisiera compartir un ejemplo también. La, la cervecería en Tecate, ah, antes echaba todo su desperdicio al, al río y apestaba, era mucho nutriente lo que desgastaban hace muchos años. Pues como hace 20 años empezaron a, a cambiar ese proceso y desde que entregó Heineken, todo, todo ese material va para ganado. Y es el principio que no hay desperdicio en la naturaleza, que estos círculos tienen que ser círculos virtuosos en donde todos los nutrientes se utilizan. También lograron en la planta, en la fábrica de Heineken, disminuir el uso del agua para producir cerveza. Es 
es la producción de cerveza en donde más ahorran agua en, en el mundo ahorita. Entonces, cuando hay esa necesidad, hay, sí hay maneras. Y, y cuando uno de los grandes problemas que sucedió um, en el mundo fue cuando se separó Exacto. el cría de animal del cría de las plantas. Total. Y la fertilidad del animal se, sa se sacó y se tuvo que reemplazar con, con químicos. Entonces, otra vez es tratar de juntar. Exacto. Sí, And from a wine perspective, to find the right pairings, right? Sí. Ajá. Y mire, quiero agregar algo. Este, en una ocasión estábamos en la, en la India y yo siempre estoy promoviendo esto. Estábamos en una convención de la ONU y me acerqué a la delegación de al alemana. Y me, me dijeron que, no, pues si que usted estoy en una presentación. No, no, no queremos hacer nada. Porque un kilo de carne requiere tantos litros de agua. Es cuando fallamos en el pensamiento holístico. Mm. En nuestra propiedad, si aumentamos de los pulgadas, que es el suelo degradado por hora de infiltrar, a 18 pulgadas, nuestra, nuestra finca, nuestra propiedad, tiene capacidad de captar agua en un año para satisfacer todas las demandas de agua de una población de 100,000 gentes. Entonces, hay que verlo siempre holístico, ¿verdad? O sea, ¿qué es lo que estamos haciendo y cómo beneficiamos todo el ecosistema? Bruno, ¿preguntas? ¿Sí o no? Sí. Bueno, eh, quería tocar un tema que nos ha tocado mucho y tiene que ver con los baños secos. Es para Sara y para Luis. Quería saber si ustedes este, están en procesos de aplicar ese sistema, si están educando gente y pues que hablen un poquito del tema de baños secos porque creo que es un Gran tema que es súper importante en cuanto al agua, ¿no? Pues en Parque del Profesor, eh, donde Fundación tiene todos sus programas educativos, tenemos baños secos. Y en Rancho Tres Estrellas tengo algunos baños secos también. Um, yo creo que algo que es muy importante es cambiar ese chip que tenemos del, del asco o de... Porque no huelen, son limpios. Es una maravilla. Y, y luego usamos los orines. Se tienen que diluir con agua. Pero esos orines diluidos con agua son un excelente fertilizante. Sí. Y sí, es, es un tremendo. Um, I, I once saw a cartoon where there is there's an African child looking at a, a Western older man saying, You do what in your water? Yeah,せ。オッケー、ポンケサワ、サワポタブレ、サワケセポディアスタントマンドイカウスケネバサモスアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアンアン
centro que tenemos uh, demostrativo y, y les explicamos de dónde va y cómo es que usan el nitrógeno, el potasio y todo esto para que las plantas crezcan y estén felices. De otra manera, pues nomás se desperdicia. Y es ese como el cambio de, el cambio de chip, ¿no? Es la cambio de perspectiva, oportunidades en vez de problemas para utilizar sí. estos desechos que en realidad, en realidad pueden ser recursos para beneficiarlos. La misma problema con gray water también. Yeah. We need to switch the way we think about recycled water. You know, I grew up in Germany like you, which is a place that rains constantly. It's very green. It looks like Portland. Rain, rain, rain all the time. And when I was a little kid, the water was immediately recycled and put back into the system. We only used recycled water in a place that arguably didn't need to, right? You know, so it can be done. And, and we have sort of this aversion to dry toilets or recycled water. And we have to change the chip, as you said. I think in Denmark now, they when they build new houses, they require that you, you know, you're digging up streets and stuff. They love to dig up streets to put up in a sewer and then they close it up and then they dig it up again so they can put a fiber optic cable in and then they close it again and then they dig it up again so <laughs> my you know next yeah next time they dig it up put two pipes into the house put one for you know potentially gray water and one for sewage you know if you don't want to collect it and capture it in your own place but in apartments for instance you could treat the water separately and differently and Recapture that water. De hecho, este, en el último trabajo que hicimos en el Valle de Guadalupe, para nosotros fue bien sorprendente ver que muchos de los establecimientos sí están, estable sí están poniendo baño seco o baños en donde el agua se refisa, ¿no? Lo comentaba hace rato Natalia, en el caso del, del, del este, Deckman. de Deckman, sí. el reciclado del agua es absoluto en el baño, pero también hay baños secos en donde cuando uno llega dice, esto es un vergel, ¿por qué es un vergel? Porque se está aprovechando todo lo que sale del baño seco para mantener las plantas, se está reciclando el agua de las cocinas para regarlas, y entonces uno dice, ¿por qué hay tantas plantas aquí? Sí, es, fue algo ¿Por que, por esto, porque ¿Por se está usando, como decías, todo dentro del mismo rancho sí. sin sacarlo, ¿no? Entonces es bien importante. Y se ven, digo, sí, nosotros sí, para nosotros cuando estuvimos haciendo esto, eh, establecimos por ahí un, pues, eh, un indicador sobre la sustentabilidad de los restaurantes, porque de hecho el número de restaurantes en los últimos 10 años ha aumentado a un 600%. Entonces, ¿hay capacidad o no para mantenerlos? Y parte de lo que descubrimos fue esto, ¿no? De que a lo mejor es la necesidad lo que hace que se tengan que aplicar estas prácticas, pero a través de la necesidad se va aprendiendo y se va haciendo cada vez las cosas de una manera más adecuada a las condiciones en las que estás viviendo, ¿no? Pero, pero sí es cierto, las experiencias hay que compartirlas porque si no, no se sabe qué está sucediendo. ¿no? Y es lo bueno hacerlo en comunidad, con grupos de gente, no solamente tú como individual, pues porque si no, entonces te cae la responsabilidad a ti de hacer todo esto. Y razón. De nuevo, la educación en el aspecto comunitario y hacer, hacer esto en colaboración, este, en vez de uno solo. ¿Hay otra pregunta para ella? Sí. Pues más que pregunta, es una, una anécdota que les quiero compartir que... Me parece interesante reflexión. Hace algunos años eh, tuve la oportunidad de promover eh, huertos de traspatio en comunidades rurales en Sonora. Eh, entonces, eh, pues llegué, eh, sobre todo estábamos buscando pequeñas clínicas, ¿no? Que tuvieran eh, alguna barda porque los perros y las vacas se metían. Y 
Entonces tenían que ser lugares con ciertas características y había lugares ideales que estaban en primarias y en secundarias de pequeñas comunidades aisladas y rurales. Y entonces eh, me, me pareció bien interesante cómo llegaba y les decía, pues les explicaba el proyecto y de qué va. Y me decían, es que no tenemos agua. Y yo, pero ¿cómo? Si ahí tienes un rotoplace enorme arriba de tus baños. No, pero es que eso es para el agua del baño. Digo, pues es que no, o sea, vamos a, vamos a meter letrina. Y entonces agarraba yo mi, mi baño seco y mira que el baño seco. Y le sacaba el manual de la Conafor que tienen ahí, que sí funcionan maravillosamente. Uh -huh. este Pero es este, este cambio de paradigma, ¿no? Es este chip. Sí. Y la gente decía, es que no puedo sembrar alimentos que me van a ayudar económicamente a mi salud. De verdad, es, estoy hablando de gente sumamente marginada que no tenía ni para comer. Pero es que el agua es para el baño porque como que no hay manera de que yo pueda poner un baño seco en una primaria dando un ejemplo indigno. Y el otro comentario, eh, estuve trabajando en alguna fundación hace ya años y el mero director de la fundación, pues yo traía ¿no? mi chip diciéndole que vamos a meter el baño seco. Y me decía, no, es que esa es una manera indigna de, de promover este a la gente. Y, y bueno, pues a mí me iba así como con Dorito para atrás. Es este paradigma, yo creo, en lo que hay que trabajar también. Totalmente. Excelente. Y, y tocaste un punto bien importante. En ese cambio de paradigma vienen las autoridades, la, los gobiernos, de los que no hemos hablado ahorita, pero que creo que es importante por lo que acabas de mencionar. Por ejemplo, igual, una anécdota. Para el Valle de Guadalupe, el poblado del Porvenir, eh, mucho se ha hablado de que los poblados del Valle necesitan verse y, y también recibir los beneficios que se tienen en todo el Valle. Entonces, se hizo todo un proceso para hacer unas calles con este enfoque de eh, infraestructura verde, con pavimentos permeables, con jardines de lluvia, especies que fueran o que se regaran directamente por, pues, por la brisa y por lo que fuera. No hubo manera de que las autoridades municipales autorizaran el proyecto. Los árboles se tuvieron que poner dentro de una unidad deportiva, porque ya se tenían los árboles, pero el problema fue romper no solamente el paradigma desde el punto de vista personal de, o de la comunidad, sino el modelo que se sigue y que está dentro de los esquemas institucionales. Entonces, es, esa parte yo creo que es más complicado. tiene también que trabajarse. Es más complicado porque como somos un país tan diverso en términos de México, y creo que pues en, también en, en Estados Unidos se da esta diversificación, este, pues no podemos, las políticas públicas son generales y en realidad cada localidad, cada región debería de poder tener estas excepciones adecuadas a las condiciones. Y esa parte es muy complicada y hay que trabajar. No, y, sí, y tiene usted razón porque nosotros cuando trabajamos en los ranchos, en las fincas, cada rancho tiene que tener su propio enfoque. Porque muchas veces hemos sido educados para seguir fórmulas. Sí, claro. Y las fórmulas no trabajan porque está el contexto. Oye, es que dame una fórmula, es que no te puedo una fórmula. Por eso decimos el racional, que tú, espérame, es que tenemos que pensar, tienes que pensar qué hacer en tu contexto, tanto económico como social, como este natural, ¿no? 
Bueno, y, y a mí se me hace como trabajar de, como de nuevo, lo, a trabajar de, de arriba para abajo, no de abajo para arriba. Mm. Este también mm. queda mucho nosotros, este, eh, informar a las políticas o, o dar esa influencia a las políticas públicas que se desarrollan. Por ejemplo, en, en de nuevo, los baños secos, este, el diseño que nosotros, este, tenemos y le comunicamos a la gente ha sido aprobado por el Departamento de Calidad Ambiental de Arizona. Así que ya se nos probemos y les decimos, esto ya pasó por ese nivel. Entonces se puede hacer. Claro, está este proceso, está aprobado, pero luego se tiene que trabajar en el proceso, o sea, para que te aprueben este diseño y que tú lo puedas poner y que no haya ningún problema, ¿no? Sí. Este, pero en eso también es lo que ta eh, estamos trabajando. Um, y creo que hay otras cosillas también así en Tucson que con un nuevo desarrollo de, de edificios, casas y así, se le tiene que poner este... Grey Water Stub Outs, no sé cómo se dice en inglés, en español, pero para que puedan este, producir agua gris y ingresar al paisaje. Entonces hay... Sí hay maneras de trabajar, pero pues si las ciencias son complicadas, las políticas más. Este, sí, eh, sí, es lo que estoy descubriendo yo. Otra pregunta para él. ¿Qué tal? Buena tarde. Eh, no, pues muchísimas gracias y felicidades por todos sus proyectos. La verdad son súper inspiradores. Y sí, justamente nosotros tenemos un nuevo clima de California y pues yo creo que la historia también, la cultura tiene que ver mucho. Aquí en Senado en 1940 había 4.000 personas aquí en el en el municipio, ¿no? Entonces apenas estamos empezando a hacer estas políticas y empezar a hacer esos proyectos que verdad sí permeen en, en un futuro. Pero bueno, yo también tengo muchas preguntas, así como Natalia, pero bueno, me voy a enfocar en dos nada más, que son dos problemáticas que están, que puedo ver, ¿no? Por ejemplo, aquí tenemos a su compañero Gabriel y está se están haciendo unos muestreos de la playa de Senado, pues la gente, creo que ya todo el mundo sabe que tengo la playa de Moscantomenea de México, y ya tenemos los muestreos en la UABC también. Aquí la maestra no va a dejar mentir, ya se tiene todo un archivo de años, ¿no? De cómo ha cambiado la, cal la calidad del agua. Pero lamentablemente la comisión de agua, que es el, el manejo del agua que se hace en el estado es por municipio, o debería ser por municipio. Entonces tenemos estas comisiones que son estatales, que en verdad no arreglan el problema como debe ser. Entonces sacamos a la mesa la otra vez de cómo podríamos demandar, o ustedes en su en su trayectoria, ¿cómo podemos demandar de una manera mejor internacional? Porque como el agua de aquí llega también a Estados Unidos y la de Estados Unidos llega para acá, verdaderamente compartimos ese mar. Pero como no hay un freno y no hay una política o un grupo organizado que tenga que tener una política seria, ¿no? De que verdaderamente estas personas no están cumpliendo con sus funciones. Entonces, esa es mi primera pregunta. ¿Ustedes qué comentario, qué, qué hazaña o qué, o qué manejo se podría hacer de una manera internacional o en equipo para poder demandar estas comisiones y tener mínimo esos muestreos que estén al alcance de todos. Y mi otra pregunta, también Mexicali, en el Valle de Mexicali hay un problema con los trigueros, con la gente que vende trigo, están en protesta hace como dos, tres meses, porque no les compran el trigo al precio que debe de ser, o sea, se los compran en seis mil pesos, mientras que debería ser como en diez mil, ocho mil, mínimo para tener una rentabilidad. Pero no sé qué, qué proyecto, qué manejo, qué consejo le darían ustedes a todos estos trigueros y a todos estos agricultores en el Valle de Mexicali, que ellos inundan riegan por inundación, nada de nada de swells, ni manejo integral, ni nada. O sea, ellos dicen en Estados Unidos eh, riegan de una manera con láser, inundan toda la parcela, y en Mexicali todo el mundo sabe que tiene 50 grados de temperatura y ellos piensan que es la mejor manera porque lleva mucho tiempo. Y como estas comisiones de agua no les hacen un manejo, no les ponen un, una restricción, pues ellos siguen tirando el agua, ¿no? Entonces esa sería mi segunda pregunta. ¿Qué, qué consejo le podrían dar a a los agricultores de Mexicali que nada siembran trigo y alfalfa. Y también tienen mucha ganadería, pero la tienen de toda, toda mal, mal manejada. 
Entonces me pueden contestar esas dos preguntas de cómo, qué, 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 qué consejo le dan a los, a los trigueros y qué manejo internacional o qué estrategia podemos utilizar para poder tener una mejor calidad de las plantas de tratamiento que tenemos en el municipio. Las... Este, yo creo que te, a la primera pregunta, este, creo que podría extender un poco. Creo que aún se necesita mucho que aprender, o sea, se, hay mucho que aprender este, eh, sobre cómo se, se, se manejan ¿no? las aguas. O sea, es muy diferente dentro de estados, dentro de municipios, y luego también empieza a considerar cómo, cómo se maneja en Estados Unidos, ¿no? Este, y cómo se miden diferentes cosas. Así que de lo que yo he aprendido, ahorita mucho tiene que ver la armonización de datos y el intercambio de sabiduría para saber qué es lo que ha pasado, qué es lo que está pasando, qué es lo que va a pasar, para poder empujar ese diálogo, ¿no? De manejo. Este, creo que ahorita todavía son, es muy delicado en, en, en el aspecto de decir, vamos a manejar esta cuenca, este río de esta manera, porque son dos diferentes países, do, dos diferentes estados, 15 municipios que todos están participando, y no solo el gobierno, pero también la, la academia este, y las ONGs y otros este, de esfuerzos que a lo mejor no están en sinergia. Entonces, no solamente el hecho de que se necesita aprender más que, sobre qué es lo que está pasando, pero también llegar a ese, a ese nivel de sinergia donde se puede hacer un, un impacto más, más este, claro, ¿no? Este, para poder avanzar ese diálogo de manejo de de aguas y cuentas, ríos. Este, es, lo que está, es lo que he aprendido, porque es lo que me interesa a mí en lo que he estado trabajando ahora con el Juan Carlos San Pedro y Santa Cruz, cómo, cómo interactúan ambos nogales, cómo interactúa Guapita con Naco, cómo interactúan este, estas regiones, pues, y cuáles son los intereses, cuáles son las industrias. Uh, entonces, sí, es, es algo muy complicado, pero sí es muy interesante. Sí, mira, y una, la segunda pregunta, este, en Chihuahua se... se... Bueno, hay todo tipo de cultivos, pero uno de los más cultivos más fuertes es el nogal, o sea, la nuez pecanera. Y ahí tenemos dos, tres ejemplos con, con agricultura regenerativa en donde se siembra unas 15 especies distintas o se trabaja sobre lo que ya estaba nativo y se meten las borregas. Y esa gente está ahorrando el 50% del agua. Obviamente no inundan, porque fíjate, los excesos causan más problema, como, igual que nosotros. Oye, es que necesito tomar esta vitamina y la tomas en exceso y es un problema. Que no es tan simple como, ah, es que nomás tomo esta vitamina, ¿no? El exceso de agua mata también mucha microbiología. Entonces yo te garantizo que ese tipo de riesgos, ¿por qué están preocupados de querer? O sea, obviamente el sistema no trabaja ¿ah? porque siempre el que paga los platos rotos es el productor. Y lo ahí está todos los brokers o los coyotes, ¿no? Pero... Realmente, en la, por ejemplo, en una ganadería regenerativa o una agricultura regenerativa, nosotros no estamos preocupados por los precios. Porque lo que mata más al agricultor son los insumos, o sea, lo sintético. Y si entonces, si tú tienes un monocultivo, estás expuesto a las plagas, que no tienes diversidad, ¿verdad? Y luego, si estás inundando ahí, y aparte, imagínate los cambios de temperatura, inundas y luego no tienes nada entre, entre los surcos, y luego en las altas temperaturas... Entonces, está matando toda la microbiología. Y si no tienes microbiología, tienes una planta débil. Y si tienes una planta débil, tienes un producto. Tienes que traer de fuera para poderla... O sea, por eso le llamamos a veces a ese tipo de cultivo hidroponía extensiva. Sí, porque en el suelo no te está, te, te, lo está deteniendo para que no se caiga. Y se caen como quiera. Entonces, ahí yo, mi recomendación es... Mira, es difícil cambiar a los productores, y ya les dije... Nosotros, el enfoque que hemos tenido en Chihuahua es, ok, estamos enfrente de 100 personas, 
ya detectamos este y este y este y este, el que quieren, que ellos tienen hambre, y bueno, yo no quiero discriminar aquí a nadie, pero muchos son los jóvenes y las mujeres las que están liderando esto. Entonces, este y este y este, y vamos a pedir la gracia de Dios para que el papá lo deje hacer algo. Porque muchos de los padres estamos obstaculizando el avance. No es que así lo hizo, así lo hizo yo, mi abuelo. Sí, pero tu abuelo agarró una tierra fértil. Tú estás agarrando polvo. O sea, y estás con una planta completamente pendiente de todo. Entonces, aquí la cuestión es aplicar los principios de, de agricultura negativa. Y muchas veces la gente piensa, pues que no produce lo mismo. ¿Cómo vamos a alimentar el mundo? Eso es, dirían los americanos, bullcrap. Bueno, con esto, entonces vamos a terminar esta discusión. Gracias a todos ustedes y un aplauso por todos los expertos que tenemos acá. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.